And that's the intro music to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio 98.3 FM 2XX. Uh, my name is Rod. This morning I got on my little bicycle and it's about a half hour ride in and I'm about a minute into the journey. I looked out at my little bicycle computer and I thought, you know, I've got to do this journey times 30 minus 1. You know, like it's a 30 minute journey. And then a minute later I thought, hey, now I've only got to do it times 15 minus 2. And then a few minutes later, I saw this dog with only three legs. And I thought, wow, how about that? Now, why did I see all that? Absolutely no reason at all, other than I think the world is in a really interesting place. And I'm very pleased to say that we have a special guest today who is very interested in the universe, which is why he's Professor of Astronomy at Cornell University, Professor Phil Nicholson. And I'm delighted to say that he's agreed to come back for a repeat visit to Fuzzy Logic Welcome back, Professor Phil. Morning, Rod. I'm very happy to be back again for a second time. Good thing my ratings weren't so bad last time. I wasn't banned from the studio. <laughs> oh, we thought about it, but no, no. Hell, I wouldn't, wouldn't pass up the opportunity to have you on Fuzzy Logic. And that's exactly what we're doing today. And we have a real collection of interesting stuff today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the planets and update on various missions and well, all sorts of interesting little things along the way. And, uh, like, here's a completely random piece of information for you. Today is the birth of Frederick Seitz. Seitz? How do you pronounce it, Phil? Seitz, I believe. Seitz. And Phil knows about this gentleman. He was born on the 4th of July. Note the date, 4th of July. It's also American Independence Day, 1911. American physicist who made fundamental contributions to the theory of solids, nuclear physics, and fluorescence and crystals. And the word fluorescence gets my attention there because in a few weeks' time, or next, maybe August or so, we have possibly um, a forensic scientist who's going to come on to Fuzzy Logic, and they uh, are, or we're going to do their PhD on using fluorescence to track oil on how to uh, find out where, what ship it came from when you find a spill, which is a big topic right now. I think we figured out that stuff appearing around Florida probably came from the deep water horizon. Uh, thanks, Rod. I also had to have a few days in science uh, history as well. Uh, quite a few interesting anniversaries uh, happened over the past week. On the 2nd of July, 1698, Thomas Savory patented the first steam engine. On, the, on that day in 1900, the first Zeppelin flight uh, took place from uh, Lake Constance near Frederikshafen in Germany. And also on that day in 2002, Steve Foss became the first person to fly solo around the world non-stop in a balloon. Amon, since you mentioned the uh, flight and the balloonist there, this is also the anniversary of Jean-Paris-Francoise Blanchard, born on the 4th of July 1753, who did the first aerial crossing of the English Channel uh, in a balloon. So there you go. Uh, thanks, Rod. And also, this would be special interest uh, to everyone here today. On the 30th of June 1905, Albert Einstein uh, published his, uh, his article on the electrodynamics of moving bodies, in which he introduced the theory of our special relativity. On the 29th of June 1927, uh, there was the first test of Wallace Turnbull's uh, controllable pitch propeller, which is a pitch where the blades can be uh, angled during uh, various stages of flight. And the 29th of June 1995, uh, in the Space Shuttle program, the STS-71 mission was when Atlantis docked with the Russian space station Mir for the first time. And I also realised it is the 4th of July, so of course... Happy Independence Day to the US and also to the uh, the Philippines as well, and also a very special uh, happy birthday to one of my aunts. Um, she had a uh, very special day. Man, granted, she is up in Brisbane, but uh, she's definitely in all our thoughts. She's done very, very well. Well, and uh, look, we have a quite a few anniversaries of science today. And earlier before the show, uh, we were talking about some of these, and this one is the birthday of Henrietta Leavitt. Leavitt. Uh, Leavitt, I think. Leavitt. Born on the 4th of July, 1868, and died in 1921. This is the astronomer who was responsible for figuring out the Cepheid variable stars. And that's, of course, the stars that have a regular flickering, is my understanding is correct, Phil? Uh, yes, they were the f key to figuring out distances beyond just our immediate stellar neighbourhood. They became the technique that astronomers used to measure distances to other nearby galaxies and she studied she was uh, studying images of the Magellanic Clouds which you can see 
and the southern sky here obviously quite well from Australia and I believe that Harvard Harvard College Observatory where she worked had a program they had a telescope operating down in uh, Peru I believe it was it was a Harvard Southern Station where they took photographic plates of the southern sky brought them back to Harvard she uh, compared many of these plates looking for stars that were variables she discovered a whole flock of variable stars and a few of these had been known in our own galaxy but only a handful she discovered many of them in the Magellanic Clouds I'm not sure how many but I think a few hundred and that was enough to show that there was a statistical relationship that the longer the period of the Cepheid in other words the longer the interval between the brightenings and the dimmings of the star the brighter the star was because they were all in the Magellanic Cloud we knew that they were all at the same distance so that key relationship meant that if you could measure the the period, the period between brightenings of a Cepheid variable star, you could look up Henrietta Leavitt's plot and basically read off the what astronomers call the absolute magnitude or the brightness of the star. And that means that if you find another Cepheid in another galaxy somewhere else, all you have to do is measure its period. Does it oscillate every one day, ten days, every hundred days? That's That's the kind of range we're talking about. If you measure the period of that Cepheid, you can look up our plot, read off the absolute brightness of the star, and then you observe how apparently bright the star is. And the difference between those simply tells you how far away the star is, because the further away it is, the dimmer the light gets. So that became the key to measuring distances. It's still used now. One of the principal projects of the Hubble Space Telescope when it was launched back in the early 90s was to try to find Cepheid variables in more distant galaxies than was possible to observe from the ground, and in particular determine the distance to giant clusters of galaxies like the Virgo cluster. And that was eventually successful, but it was a direct following on from the, the technique that she established back in 1910 or so. All right. Now, a few years back, I did a, an adult astronomy course at uh, Mount Stromlo, and one of the things I learned in that was that there's this whole chain of techniques, each one rests on the on the method before it for working out the distance to things. So up close, it's the parallax, uh, so the planets and so on. Correct. Yeah. Uh, distance to star, nearby stars, and nearby stars even. Yes. Yeah. And then from there to Cepheids, and then from there, and there's, and uh, blue shift, red shift. Um, Redshifts for the greatest distances. Once we, if you get to clusters beyond the Virgo cluster, uh, then you're getting to the point where the velocities of the galaxies are dominated by the fact that the universe is expanding. And out of those distances, this does not work for very nearby galaxies like Andromeda or the Magellanic Clouds, but for distant galaxies, you see them typically moving away from the sun at hundreds of kilometers per second to thousands of kilometers per second. And you can measure that from the redshift in their spectrum. And that redshift, uh, the astronomer Hubble discovered in the 1930s, was proportional to how far away the galaxies were. So now calibrating each of those further, those larger distance scales, depends on the scale below it being calibrated. Yes. Is, is that right? Yes, it's referred to as a sort of a cosmic distance ladder and you're right I mean, the whole ladder is in a sense no stronger than the weakest step in the ladder because to get to each more distant way of measuring more distant objects you usually you rely on calibrating that in terms of distances to closer things and one of the big uh, well significant source of uncertainty uh, for a long time has been actually the calibration of the Cepheid scale because uh, while Miss Levitt was able to measure lots of Cepheids in the Magellanic Clouds and establish the relation between the period and the brightness. Back at that time, we did not know the distance to the Magellanic Clouds very well. So that, actually, the calibration, the, the, the rung on the ladder below the Cepheids was actually um, a couple of dozen Cepheid variables within our own galaxy that happened to be close enough to use trigonometric parallaxes to measure and that was a weak link for a long time because it depended on a small number of stars. Cepheids are bright, fairly rare stars, and there aren't very many nearby. So this is this is no trivial question in astronomy, is it? Because you know we say the universe is fourteen point two three billion years old, uh, thirteen point something, thirteen and a half or so, something like that. Yeah. So the, the very age of the universe is directly dependent on this what you call the ladder of uh, distance measurement. Is that Am I right there? 
Uh, it is. That's right. Yes, it all. The absolute distances all depend on that. That that comes from. I mean, there's a lot of pieces that go into that calculation of that age, but I think it's fair to say that one of those pieces depends eventually on the calibration of this Hubble law between velocities and distances, and that it in turn depends on determining distances to nearer galaxies that we can figure out other ways that comes back through Cepheids and parallaxes. So astronomers are always looking at ways to sort of bootstrap and check this chain of logic because so much depends on it. Mm. Now you have a personal connection to uh, Levitt, don't you? Because uh, you visited the, the, the astronomy, the, sorry, the observatory, get the right word? <laughs> We're talking astronomy. Yes. Observatory, where, you, where you, you went there a few months ago, didn't you? Yes, we had a conference in, in Boston, and the conference organizers arranged a little trip to the Harvard College Observatory for us so that we could see their venerable uh, 15-inch telescope. And we also saw the famous uh, plate vaults, which is where Harvard stores, I think it's about 500,000 glass plates, many of which were taken back around the about 100 years ago, the turn of the last century in the early 19-teens and 20s, uh, including many of the ones that Henrietta Levitt used for her Cepheid study. So we got a chance for a tour of that. They are undertaking a huge project at the moment of digitally scanning all of these old glass plates. So they built a scanning, high-speed scanning machine that will take CCD images of the plates and eventually reduce them to digital form so that hopefully they'll come back again and they'll be used for more astronomical studies because having a historical record that goes back over 100 years in astronomy is still quite rare. So there's probably still discoveries to be made by comparing these old plates with modern pictures of the sky. Giovanni Schiaparelli died on the 4th of July. He's a dude who thought there was canals on Mars, and we've got quite a bit going on on Mars at the moment, don't we? We think there might be life, possibly, buried deep in the soil. Well, some people think there might be, or maybe more likely there has been life in the past. There's, there's geological evidence that Mars was wetter in the past, maybe with a thicker atmosphere, so there's speculation that there may have been uh, oceans or significant bodies of water at or near the surface of Mars based on some of the rocks. Well, I thought this might be a good opportunity found. to do a quick update on where the various bits of machinery are around the solar system and uh, those brave little robots, the little spirit and the opportunity, those things, they were meant to last for four months and here we are four or five years later and the spirit is stuck in the sand still and this is uh, day or sole 2301 or roughly and her site's called the Troy on the west side of Home Plate and I haven't actually heard from her since uh, the 22nd of March the thing went into shutdown mode and it had a low power fault but uh, they're hoping that it'll wake up it'll probably just go into a power save mode because it's it's cold up there at the moment <laughs> it's always cold but the, the charge to the solar it's colder cells. in the winter yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, so they think it'll probably wake up. And it's so far, well, it's done probably at its terminus there, 7,700 metres or 7.7 kilometres. And the opportunity is still chugging away through the sand. It continues to make good progress towards the Endeavour crater, and it's done 21.5 kilometres. Now, the other thing which uh, I wanted to quickly update was the Voyager and uh, you might recall that a little while ago it had a, a fault. It's, it started sending garbled information back. And so what they've done is they've actually managed to recover the communication to it. They flipped the bit in its onboard computer. And so, Phil, where would you say this thing now? It's a- approaching the very limits of our solar system, isn't it? Yes, I'm not sure of the actual distance. Both Voyagers are now well beyond, and the Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecraft that preceded them, are they're beyond the distance of the, the furthermost planets. They're beyond Neptune and Pluto at the moment. They're traveling off in different directions, and their next big goal was to cl- cross what's known as the heliopause. There's a sort of a tenuous atmosphere of gases that blows out from the sun that we call the solar wind, and that solar wind encompasses all of what we, all of the known solar system. Uh, there are instruments on these spacecraft that are capable of measuring the magnetic fields and the plasmas that they're flying through. We've 
By now, all of the optical instruments, the cameras and spectrometers have been turned off, but the plasma instruments and the magnetic field instruments are still running. And the goal is to get out of the solar wind into the region that we refer to as the interstellar medium, the very tenuous gas between the stars. And until we cross that heliopause, we're not really into that medium. And I believe they have... This is not just a simple crossing, but they've already begun to cross, if not have crossed completely that boundary in the last so it's year. Not, it's so. not a dotted line on the map. It's it's more of a blurred borderline. It's a, a complicated it's a, it's region. region. It's uh, It actually is a kind of a shockwave because the solar wind is expanding at a speed that's greater than the speed of sound. So there's a shockwave. You can think of it as a little bit like the shockwave that forms in a wind tunnel if you do an experiment with a supersonic jet. So you... you uh, simulate flying a jet through the air at hypersonic speeds, there's a definite sharp boundary in front of the jet where the uh, uh, where basically the air first feels the, the impact of the, uh, the airplane, airplane flying through it. So this is a supersonic shockwave caused by the sun, in a sense, plowing through the interstellar medium, but at the, uh, the high speed involved is the speed of the solar wind flowing out from the sun at hundreds of kilometers per second, so that rams into the interstellar medium, makes a shockwave. And, Phil, I've also, if I can recall, uh, around that distance away well, from our sun is originally known as the Oort cloud, and it's, I've always regarded it as like a, the birthplace of comets. Um, would that have any well, connection to where the... Uh, that's correct, but at the moment we're talking about uh, the distance where the spacecraft are now and where the edge of the heliosphere is, or the heliopause, which just means the edge of the heliosphere, that's at roughly 50 astronomical units, 50 times the distance of the Earth from the Sun. Uh, that's getting into the region that we now know as the Kuiper Belt, actually. It's beyond many of the known Kuiper Belt objects. Most of those are inside 45 or 48 astronomical units. But we are still far short of the Oort cloud. The Oort cloud is out at roughly 10,000 astronomical units. So that is much, much further out. So the Oort cloud comets, which sit out there, or we believe they do, uh, they are actually out in the interstellar medium. They are not within the solar system in the sense that they're not within the solar wind. They are still bound by the sun's gravity, though, to the solar system. And yes, that we think that is the source of so-called new comets, comets which have not previously been catalogued or seen that come into the solar system on very long period orbits like some of the listeners may remember comet uh, Hale-Bopp or Hayukataki some years ago. They were the two most famous recent examples of new comets. Okay, well you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with me, Rod Amon, and our very special guest today, Professor Phil Nicholson. And we're on the subject of astronomy and lots of things science, and we're going to break to a music track and when we come back I think I'll bring you up to date with that uh, I'll tell you that little story about the nuclear accident for no other reason than I think it's interesting but also uh, just a, a very quick update on the plastiki which we talked about last week here on Fuzzy Logic now Phil you are a lover of folk music and you've chosen this track for you this is Woody Guthrie and it is the Grand Cooley Dam are you a fan of Woody Guthrie? I am indeed, and in honour of uh, American Independence Day, that's what we'll have coming up next on 2XX Community Radio. Hey, that's it. Beautiful, thank you. And that was Woody Guthrie with a grand old coolie dam, and we've got a grand old guest, actually grand young guest, oh my dear, I'm uh, putting my foot in it already. <laughs> You're in trouble now, right? <laughs> oh, perhaps uh, I'd like to say uh, generically uh, grand guests all around. Grand, grand, guests. grand presenters. Thank you, Amon. Uh, give me a shovel, I've got to dig myself a hole here. Look, we are talking to Professor Phil Nicholson from the Cornell University and Amon and Rod, and we're talking subjects of astronomy, mostly, mostly, but look, I'm going to throw us into this quick little side uh, alley because it, it was just so interesting, and I really got to share it with you. And uh, I promised before the show, so here it is. Uh, a, a very, f- the very, f- one of the very first nuclear accidents, other than uh, Marie Curie. And by the way, she was one of this day in science types people, and she was uh, born or died on this day in whenever it was. 
<laughs> and uh, anyway, so on the 21st of August in 1945, the plutonium core produced a burst of neutron radiation that caught uh, Harry Daglin in its path. And Daglin was a physicist who made the mistake of working alone performing a neutron deflection experiment on the core. And what he did was he had this core placed within a stack of neutron reflective tungsten carbide bricks. Did you get all that? We got it in the studio, by the way. And the addition of each brick moves the assembly closer to criticality. Criticality being a fairly serious step there. And uh, so he's attempting to stack one brick around the assembly, and he accidentally dropped it onto the core and thereby caused the core to go critical. Despite quick action and moving the brick off the assembly, Daglan uh, received a fatal dose of radiation and died 25 days later. I can't believe it. These blokes are in a lab and they're dicking around with bits of plutonium, you know, sitting on bricks. You think he was nuts? Well, check this guy here. His name was Lewis Slaughton, and on the 21st of May 1946, he uh, and some other scientists were in the Los Alamos laboratory conducting an experiment that involved creating a fission reaction by placing two half spheres of beryllium that's a neutron deflector, in case you didn't know, around the same plutonium core. And Sloton's hand, there's a photo of someone recreating this. Look it up on Wikipedia. I think it's called Chasing the Demon's Tail, or there's, it has some kind of story uh, title like that around it. And Sloton's hand, holding a screwdriver, separating the hemispheres, slipped. So in the picture I've got in front of me, he's got these two big spheres, and he's got a screwdriver holding them apart, and his fingers stuck, your thumb through a hole in the top bit and he slipped and he got a criticality reaction and uh, the thing went zack and he realised he was in trouble and he quickly pulled the two halves apart stopping the chain reaction and thereby saving the lives of seven other men in the laboratory. However, Lewis Slotin died nine days later from acute radiation poisoning. The scientist assisted, he received sufficient radiation dose to cause serious injuries, oh, that, that's these people that were in the lab with him, and some permanent partial disabilities, while other in the room suffered no permanent injuries at all. Ah, oh, can you, I mean, what were, they, what were they thinking? They've got lumps of plutonium and they're, and they're wedging it apart with a screwdriver and his thumb in the top. It's hard to believe, given that these guys were physicists, not many people understood the dangers of nuclear radiation then but you'd think they would have if anybody had but there are lots of stories like that from the Manhattan Project of people uh, doing experiments like this even though they knew the outcome of the experiment presumably but they actually wanted to see how close they could come to uh, inducing a critical reaction yeah and Marie Curie I think she died of complications from uh, plutonium and was it curium the two elements named after her um, and her experiments and um Look, one of the things that I did on Fuzzy a few years ago was uh, I interviewed a guy who was pr Professor Robert Street, and he worked on the first ever nuclear reactor outside the US, which was in Harwell in Great Britain. And you can get that interview off the Fuzzy Logic podcast site. And in it, he's talking about, I said, were you concerned about safety? And he said, well, the safety people put tapes around and stuff, but, you know, we sort of are, yeah, and we just, like, pull the tapes apart and climb over when they weren't looking. <laughs> What, what may also be true is that we uh, nowadays we associate radiation, at least medium to low, even low levels of radiation, with the possibility of uh, inducing cancer and other diseases that only show up years later. I'm not sure that was much appreciated in the time before World War II or maybe even in the 1940s. They certainly knew that acute radiation exposure could result in radiation burns and poisoning and death within a few days or weeks, as happened to these people. Uh, I don't know that there was a common realization that, that non-lethal doses of radiation might result in you dying of cancer 10 or 20 years later. I think that was a, probably a later realization. Mm. And see, people are very suspicious of things now, partly as a result of that kind of thing. And so mobile phone towers, you know, they complain because they're built near schools and so on. And... Um, we do have a general angst about what we're doing with technology and so on. And, um, and, and sometimes, and sometimes it's founded, sometimes not. Yes, what uh, you say about, uh, well, not only just mobile phone towers, I mean, obviously um, very uh, high-power uh, transmission lines uh, that have uh, vast amounts of voltages coming through. Um, my sister uh, and, her and her family live uh, fairly nearby to a... Uh, 
a high-power transmission line near Sutherland. So, I mean, I obviously do share, share those concerns as well. I think a lot of it is that people don't feel that they're in control of it, that, that these things have been imposed on them. And uh, and while I, we're on this kind of general theme, and we're going to get back to astronomy in a second, but uh, uh, last week we had Dr Margie Bowman, and we were talking about the plastiki and um, the uh, all the plastic that's floating around the Pacific Ocean at the moment. Yes, right. I was all, um, I saw a documentary uh, on this. I think it was on foreign correspondent, but I was just absolutely astonished at the vast amount of rubbish that basically nations have uh, come to the conclusion. Well, it's just simply just too much. But I did recall that. Um, well, obviously, uh, spa- uh, land space is a bit of an issue at the moment. And one uh, innovative. Um, this is something I. Well, I looked up in the, the 1980s about basically making um, recycled materials and putting them into, well, floating islands and actually making them an extension of the mainland. And one uh, application put forward at the time was uh, for use as airports. I mean, you could actually have, well, uh, floating runways and taxiways and that way uh, the aircraft would uh, take off and land over water so there wouldn't be any uh, noise issues. Um, the only thing that really would need to be on land is, well, just uh, the aprons and the terminals. Wow, um, that's and this is in uh, the yeah. 1980s when this theory was proposed. Really? Um, well, funny you should say that, Amon, because if you check the Canberra Times science pages this morning, here's a quick item, which is why I brought this one up. And it's a Dutch architecture firm wants to turn plastic waste into a tropical paradise to uh, be called Recycled Island, and they want to scoop up all this plastic from the oceans and, and like you say, make it into an island, and that kind of. Uh, a water tides. That's a little, nice little segue there, off <laughs> from the hip. Um, now, Phil, you uh, are talking about tides with uh, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver at the moment. What's what are you doing with those, with tides personally? Uh, well, not so much personally, but Charlie and I are interested in the the history of tides on the Earth. But maybe before we talk about tides, we should. Uh, clear up one issue concerning the radiation we talked about. While it's true that we don't know if there are long-term effects on humans from exposure to a lot of electromagnetic radiation of the kind that you get from having a cell phone next to your ear for half the day, or that you might get from living right under a high-voltage power line, we should remember that in that case we're talking about low-frequency electromagnetic radiation which is very different from the nuclear radiation we were talking about before. We were talking about people experimenting with subcritical masses. Those are uh, subatomic particles being emitted from nuclear reactions, decay of uranium and plutonium. There's absolutely no question that that stuff is dangerous, even in in low levels, can produce long-term cancer. It's also very valuable in medical applications to kill cancers and things if you use it the right way in radiation therapy. The, uh, the issue of radiation, um, electromagnetic radiation from cell phones or power lines, my understanding is that that is much less certain. Nobody has yet demonstrated that there's any actual danger to living tissues or people. Nevertheless, as Eamon said, you know, we're now for the first time in the last few generations living in proximity to high voltage power line systems that expose us to very high fields, which humans have never lived with before. So whether it does produce an effect, is not known. And, uh, of course, here we are on the radio, beaming out radio waves, which are non-lethal, we believe. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yes, we think so. But it's a very good point, because in the popular mind, this can be conflated that we'll take things that go with those nasty, dangerous things that happen in nuclear reactions and confuse them with things that happen in mobile phones. They're actually not the same thing at all, are they? No, quite different. And there have even been cases of... uh, people in the public complaining about the construction of radio telescopes because these radio telescopes were going to collect these uh, dangerous radio waves from space. Um, Those people clearly were not thinking about the fact that the radio waves from space are there anyway. They're hitting the Earth regardless of whether or not an astronomer builds a radio telescope to collect them. But there is a a lot of confusion in the minds of the general public of, uh, since unfortunately the term physicists, physicists use the term radiation for several different kinds of phenomena that are completely unrelated. Actually, I heard a really good um, discussion about this the other day, about why people have this general feeling of angst about things. And they said there was a time when the technology was simpler enough and you could get a screwdriver and prise a lid off and you could pretty much figure out what was going on. But surrounding me here in the studio were boxes of all different sources, probably a thousand microchips within an arm's radius. 
And do do most of us know how they work? Well, probably not really. And so there's this kind of... Um, Arthur Clarke has this quote. He says, A technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. So, yeah, it's I guess it's sort of this mysteriousness of the whole thing. Hey, look, I think we might go to another track, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about tides. And, of course, Phil didn't personally do anything with it to the tides, but... Uh, is Professor Phil Nicholson from Cornell University after all, so who knows? Um, this one here, this track I'm going to play now, is from a Canberra busker, and I had it on vinyl record. I've transferred it to electronic format, and his name is Ian White, and this song is called A Gum Tree Canoe. When I listen to it, I can't help thinking concrete canoe, but I don't think that's what he meant. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio 2XX. Uh, no, no, that wasn't a concrete canoe. It was a gum tree canoe, of course, but uh, still a really nice piece of music. And I met him outside the Woden Plaza, and he had his dog there and his banjo, and he was selling these albums, and I bought it, and I still really enjoy listening to that. It was Ian White with a gum tree canoe from an album called Waiting for the Rain. You're listening to Community Radio 2 X. My name is Rod. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Amon Lindsay and Professor Phil Nicholson from Cornell University and only with us for a short time. We're going to talk about tides, but just before we do that, there's just a quick um, thing that I wanted to finish off with about that radiation story. And that was, of course, um, we don't know, we don't think it's all that likely that radiation from your mobile phone is going to do damage, but it's not all that good for electronic devices. So Sylvie called up and she's visiting Mum. Hi, Mum from the uh, Canberra Hospital and uh, we don't like having these things uh, interfering with things like broadcast stations and uh, medical monitoring equipment. So Phil, you were going to tell us about what you're doing with tides and uh, or how you're studying tides, not actually personally moving the tides around yourself. What's that? that? Well the connection is is a little indirect, but what we're trying to do is understand something about the early history of the Earth, actually the disposition of continents on the Earth, sort of early phases of continental drift or plate tectonics, and that does not sound like it has anything to do with the tides, uh, but actually there is a connection between it. What the, the tides, the ordinary tides that we're familiar with in the oceans that go up and down, typically every 12 hours or so at most places on the Australian coast. Uh, Most people know that those tides are produced by the moon, the moon's gravitational force tugging on the oceans around the Earth. Uh, Most places there are two tides on the Earth. There's a tidal bulge on the side facing the moon and then a similar bulge on the side of the Earth opposite the moon. So as the Earth rotates, those tidal bulges stay more or less fixed in space. They're sort of permanently pointed roughly towards and away from the moon. So the Earth, you can think of the Earth as rotating through those tides, because if you're sitting at a fixed location on the Earth, what you see is these tidal waves, these regions of high tide propagating around the Earth as the Earth rotates. But it's really that the Earth is moving. The tides are trying to stay oriented to the moon. So as a result, water is moved around on the Earth from one ocean to the next. Even though the tides are only a meter or so high, there's a significant amount of water volume is moved. Um, the movement of that water around the Earth, especially in regions of uh, fairly shallow parts of the ocean, like the continental shelves, islands in the mid-ocean, other sorts of places, the movement of that water dissipates energy, basically uh, turbulence is generated in the ocean, which eventually that turbulence is dissipated as energy. Uh, waves are generated in a few places like the Bay of Fundy and the Severn River in England. You get very large tides that dissipate lots of energy but overall that energy comes out of the tides therefore it comes out of the moon's orbit or comes out of a combination of the moon's orbit and the spin of the earth and the long term effects of these tides which astronomers first realized back in uh, well there were glimmerings of this going back into the 18th century there were the first suggestions that this might happen but it was not really measured until the early 1900s when astronomers discovered that the Earth is gradually slowing down, the spin of the Earth 
is getting a little bit slower measurably from century to century and at the same time the distance of the moon from the earth is gradually growing and nowadays we can measure this the Apollo astronauts put three uh, laser retroreflectors on the surface of the moon and one of the Russian Lunokhod rovers also carried a laser retroreflector so ever since about 1970 astronomers have been using optical telescopes to send laser beams to the moon bouncing laser beams off these retro reflectors, basically little corner cube reflectors, a little bit like fancy versions of what are used on highway signs to give you a reflected reflective sign on the side of the highway, warning you of kangaroos crossing or whatever. Uh, so these reflectors send the laser beam back to the Earth. They're recorded. We directly measure the distance to the moon by timing how long it takes the laser beam to get to the moon and back. So we now know from direct measurements not just inference, that the moon is moving away from the Earth at about three centimeters every year, almost four centimeters per year. So that doesn't sound like very much, but over millions to hundreds of millions of years, the moon moves appreciably away from the Earth. Uh, the other thing we know from astronomical evidence, if you go back and look at ancient uh, Chinese and Arab and Babylonian records of solar eclipses on the Earth, we know that the Earth's rotation has not been constant over time. We can predict using a current model for the solar system when a solar eclipse should happen and where it should be visible on the Earth. These ancient records clearly tell us that the eclipses were observed at different locations on the Earth, indicating that the Earth's rotation rate in the past was not quite the same as we observe it to be now. So that's consistent with this picture that tides have gradually been removing energy from the Earth's spin transferring that energy to the moon. The moon moves away from the Earth. The Earth slows down. If you wind all of this backwards using the current rates of motion, you come up with the embarrassing result that the moon was very close to the Earth less than 2 billion years ago, maybe 1.5 billion years ago. And we know from geological evidence that that was not the case. If the moon had been very close to the Earth, then that would have resulted in kilometer-sized tides in the ocean rather than the meter-sized tides that we're used to. What do you mean by very close, inverted commas? Um, by very close, I mean maybe approximately 10 times closer than now at a distance of... The, the moon is currently 60 times the radius of the Earth away from the Earth. We're talking about being five or six Earth radii away from the Earth. So the moon would have looked... 10 times bigger in the sky if wow. there were critters around on the Earth to observe the moon at the time. And the tide would have been a 1,000 times higher because the tides increase with the cube of the separation between the two bodies. Okay, so you have reason to doubt that it was ever quite that close then? Yes, geologists would tell us that there's plenty of evidence for sedimentary rocks having formed on the Earth under conditions more or less the same as the current Earth conditions. And there are other indirect sets of rocks that we actually think we see direct evidence for tidal cycles in some of these old sedimentary rocks, many of which are found in Western Australia. So we don't think the moon was very close to the Earth only one and a half billion years ago, but it probably formed very close to the Earth, but more like four, four and a half billion years ago. Did the Earth have decent-sized oceans back then? I think one and a half billion years ago it definitely did, it probably did not have such oceans four billion years ago. And exactly when the oceans developed and how early in Earth's history, I think, is still uh, an outstanding mystery. But we can be pretty confident that back to three billion years ago, for example, the, the famous uh, banded iron formations in Western Australia in the Pilbara, where much of the iron mining that goes on now, uh, those are quite old. Those are layers of uh, iron-bearing minerals that clearly formed on the bottom of an ocean at the time. So there were large bodies of water on Earth back to, I think, at least around 3 billion years ago. Uh, that's pretty clear. Now, what, what I love about what you're doing there is, I mean, we talk about science as a creative exercise. So what, what you and Charlie are talking about, the way you've described that there, we tend to think of the Earth sitting still and, and the tides moving around the Earth, but what you've done is you've inverted that thinking and you said, well, really, the Earth is moving inside this bubble of ocean and, and the, the ocean's more or less staying still and it's the Earth that, that's, that's turning inside the bubble. I, I love that inversion of logic. That's, that's wonderful. Yes, it's a good way to think of it. It is an oversimplification of what happens, but it's, a, I think, a little closer 
to the truth, at least if you are sitting on Mars observing the Earth, that's what you would see. So what else are you working on at the moment, Phil? Oh, completely apart from this issue, the my uh, main day job, so to speak, when I'm not on sabbatical in Australia, is working on uh, planetary rings and the dynamics of Saturn's rings. So I've been working for quite a few years on observations made with the Cassini spacecraft, which is in orbit around Saturn. So that's my long-term interest in research, is understanding the dynamics of Saturn's fabulous ring system. And the tool we're using for that now are all the observations that are coming back from the Cassini mission. Yeah, that's... Um, look, I think we might play a quick track. And this is another one from uh, Ian White, the same dude we heard from him. I'd never call himself a dude, but he's a folk musician. And this one is the Diamond Tina here on Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. Once more I'm on the bridal track. And that was Ian White. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Into your brainwaves, over the airwaves, over the net. You can stream us through the 2XX website. You can podcast us from Fuzzy Logic on 2XX.podbean.com. And you can get that through iTunes. And our special guest today is Professor Phil Nicholson from Cornell University, currently in sabbatical in Australia. My name is Rod. That last track, uh, that was called, titled uh, Diamond Tina? That's what I've called it. I'd have to look at the album to get the real name. Yep. Well, of course, it's a very good Queensland river. Um, when I uh, used to spend some time with the CRC for freshwater ecology, uh, that river system was uh, quoted quite, quite a few times, so it's definitely an interesting system to... And uh, I was swimming in it a few months ago. And which is water. Water is tides. So let's finish our, move on to our conversation about tides, Phil, because you were giving us the background there, but uh, I didn't give you the chance to tell us where your research is headed and what, what exactly are you looking at in particular with that story? Well, what we're interested in, in doing, I mentioned there is a problem that if you take the, the current rate at which the moon is receding from the earth and extrapolate it back, you have a, an unacceptably an unacceptable circumstance of the moon being very close to the earth so astronomers and geologists particularly off and on over the last 30 years have tried to find geological evidence for how far the moon was from the earth at various points in the past and of course since there were no astronomers around 100 million years ago to make observations of the moon and record that it might sound like an impossible job but it turns out that there are some features left behind in the geological record some traces of evidence that show the presence of tides on the Earth and even let us measure the number of days in the month or days in the year. Uh, the first discoveries of that were based on fossils. And in fact, although it's long before I went there, there was a professor of paleontology at Cornell University. Professor Wells was the first to discover, point this out in the 1960s, that certain kinds of fossils, certain kinds of corals that were abundant in the fossil record in New York produced these uh, regular lines. If you looked at them under a microscope, you could see there were lines a little bit like the tree rings in a tree. These were lines that developed during the lifetime of the coral. And you notice that there were regular variations in the thickness of these lines. And there were patterns of things like 28 or 30 in these. And he said, oh, maybe this is the number of days in a month or the number of tides in a fortnight, the period between spring tides, for example. And then in certain fossils and corals, he found evidence of look like annual patterns, something like 350 or 400 lines. There would be a regular, the lines would get further apart and closer together. And he said maybe they were responding to the seasons. And that led to a small cottage industry for about a decade of paleontologists looking at different kind of fossils and looking for more evidence. And eventually it was found that many uh, bivalves, ordinary clamshells, not all, but many of them, uh, had sim produced similar features. Uh, basically, as each ed the edge of the shell, as it grew, would grow um, faster in certain seasons and slower in others, and it would respond to the height of the tides because many of these creatures and, live in the intertidal zone. And as a quick interjection there, did you know that they're studying the, um, the shellfish in the Gulf of Mexico and they're going to see how it's affected by the oil spill that's happened at the moment? So you can see those growth rings in the cockles and the shellfish... Uh, yes, there. you can use this afterwards to figure out periods of stress in the same way that 
you know, paleogeographers and others study ancient tree rings and they can identify long periods of drought, say, in the American Southwest by looking at old timbers and they can recognize that there were certain periods where the trees didn't grow very well for 20 years or so and they can associate that with periods of, of drought where there wasn't much rainfall for the trees. I, I love the fact that here you are an astronomer and you're looking at rocks and you're looking at coral and forms of life and it's it's not just this box of data that comes from uh, an, a, a, an astronomy uh, observatory, you know, from a telescope. You're actually looking at all these other sources of information to learn what's going on. Yeah, this is a rather... That's one of the things that makes this particular project interesting is that it's at the, it's at the sort of interface between astronomy and geology and paleontology. You need a little bit of information... From each of those scientists, the, the paleontologists would probably never have become interested in these things if there weren't astronomers saying, well, we'd like to know what the length of the month was in the past. And similarly, the astronomers had no idea what evidence to look for. And, and a great moment for me on Fuzzy was a couple of years ago, I had Dr. Ian Williams, who runs the Shrimp Mass Spectrometer at, at ANU here, and he pulled out of his pocket this little rock. It was like a little slice of meatloaf or something and he said that rock you're holding in your hand now is the oldest rock ever found on the planet and you've now got it in your hand I'm going ah oh, that's amazing and that's just wow so what what are you learning from the rocks so what's what have you what's it told you well the hope is that the original idea it's curious to see that things turn inside out that geologists who first were looking at these rocks and counting layers are looking at these fossils and counting growth lines in them. The original hope was that this might be a way of dating fossils. I mean, it's interesting. Each science assumes that the other people's side of the fence understands everything much better than they do. So the geologists thought, well, astronomers must understand everything about the history of the moon. If we count, fossil, we count growth lines in a fossil, we can go to the astronomers and say, what age must this fossil be if there's a certain number of days in the year? They were looking for a way of getting, avoiding the expense of radioactive dating of rocks, which was not such a cheap thing to do in the 1960s. They thought this might be a way of mass dating fossils. Uh, but that's not true because the astronomers didn't know very much at all exactly where the moon was 400 million years ago, which was the age of the fossils that Professor Wells was looking at. So the astronomers turned the tables on this and said, oh, well, we know the age of the rocks much better than we know where the moon was. You're telling us how far away the moon was from the Earth 400 million, or million years ago, indirectly. And that's become the way this technique has been used since. So we're interested in pushing this further. Um, we've realized over the last 30 years that the uh, the fact that we don't know how fast the moon is moving away from the Earth over geological time is to do with the fact that we don't really know the configuration of the ocean basins and the continents very well. We know it pretty well for the last couple of hundred million years. We can reconstruct where the continents were, but by the time you get back four or five hundred million years, let alone a billion years, it's very uncertain exactly what the configuration of the continents were. They've come apart and been put together several times in that period. And uh, what Charlie and I figure is that the the rate at which the uh, energy is dissipated in the oceans from these tides will depend a lot on whether the continents existed in half a dozen big pieces scattered around the Earth like they do now with lots of shallow seas and lots of straits for water to pass between them, presumably dissipating a lot of energy. There have been other times where most of the continents were combined with into one or even one or two giant continents and two-thirds of the ocean Earth was covered by a big uninterrupted ocean basin. And then the uh, energy dissipated may have been much less. There would have been less resistance to the flow of tides around the Earth. So we're hoping that maybe by using these geological evidence of how far the moon was from the Earth to actually turn it backwards and begin to learn something about the Earth, about the large-scale configuration of uh, continents and uh, ocean basins on the Earth. That has not to be... It has yet to be realized, but that's their hope. Isn't it interesting how, you know, the human scale is, you know, your rock of the earth or your, the, a bedrock, and we think of that as being this unshakable foundation, except in an earthquake, of course. But what you're really telling us with science such as this is the, the, the earth itself is this very dynamic system in a very dynamic system of the planets and the moon, and the whole lot is kind of this turbulent thing jumbling through space and you were talking earlier about 
the heliopause and how it's a chaotic boundary. And I, I'm having this mental image of this little pea-sized grain of Earth shooting through space. And uh, anyway, I'm getting a little carried away here. Um, look, one thing you've done for us, uh, Phil, is you've managed to um, put me in contact with Dr. Brian Schmidt, from also from Mount yes. Strom- Stromelo, and he's agreed to come on to Fuzzy Logic, which is great news. And uh, what do you know of his research? He's he's doing the the, the wide field uh, um, telescope. Is that right? Looking at the sky mapping. Uh, yes, Brian has built a, a specialized telescope called or telescope plus camera system called Sky Mapper. Uh, built up at Mount Stromlo, but actually operating now up at Siding Spring Observatory. It's up in the Warrumbungle Mountains, uh, outside of Coonabarabran in northeastern New South Wales. That's been the dark sky site that the astronomers from the ANU have used since the 1960s or 1970s. Is it optical astronomy? This is optical astronomy. They are uh, photographing the sky on a regular basis, so they're using these uh, wonderful new devices called CCDs or charge-coupled devices, the same essential device that's used in a camera phone or on on any electronic camera these days, the same gadgets that are used by the Hubble Space Telescope. That lets you take digital images of the sky the advantage of this is that these, those images are in a form that you can start processing them on a computer right away. So unlike Henrietta Levitt 90 years ago, who had to laboriously look at photographic plates of the sky and look at each individual star to try to find her Cepheid variables, nowadays we can take these digital images. The information is already electronic, feed it directly into a computer. They can take images of the sky uh, separated by several days, or several weeks, depending on the kind of targets they're looking for, compare those images in the computer, and then look for things that move, things that have either physically moved on the sky. For example, they'd be discovering Kuiper Belt objects, objects in the very outer solar system that are slowly moving, that just look like a little faint star until you discover that it's moving. They can also look for variable objects of the kind, variable stars, but exploding supernovae. There's many different things you can do uh, there have been several such projects initiated in the northern hemisphere over the last decade. Astronomers have started to do this, but most of the observatories are in the north, so they've studied the northern sky. There's been no really similar study of the southern sky to date, so Brian Schmidt's uh, sky map was designed to sort of fill oh, that And void. I wonder if, it, as a result of that, we need Bruce Willis to go and blow up a, a comet you know, that's headed for the Earth, <laughs> which, of course, is a very silly idea, but... Uh, uh, look, that uh, brings us to a close of the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. My guests this morning have been Dr. Phil Nicholson. Thanks again, Rod. Pleasure to be here. Professor from Cornell University on sabbatical here in sunny Canberra. And Amon Lindsay. Oh, it's great to be here, Rod. Good you, Amon. My name is Rod. And uh, you've been listening to Fuzzy Logic. Thanks for your company this morning. 